So let me just paint a picture of where we're headed this morning. We're going to launch a new series from uh, Paul's first letter to a church in a place called Thessalonica. So it's the first letter to the Thessalonians. We're also going to share in the communion elements later. And also as a part of this message, I'm going to kind of share parts of my personal testimony with you, um, like why I did this morning before his baptism. If you've been around Crossroads, sorry. Some of that's going to be a little redundant for you. Um, But it really fits this morning with with the message where we're going. And this series is entitled Transformation or Transformed, and that's what the whole thing is about. And we're going to look at this first letter to the Thessalonians because these people were so transformed. It was amazing. It was clearly a supernatural act of God. And it's something I think that's super relevant for us, especially today, because maybe you gave up on the New Year's resolution thing a long time ago, but we still kind of think that, don't we, as we move into a new year? Because we want things to be better. And so we resolve. I actually did some research this week to see where the whole New Year's resolution thing started. And it's way, way, way back, let me tell you. Back to the years ago. So that tells me that there's something in our DNA that we want things to be different. We're not content with who we are and with this place, with what's around us. And that only makes sense if you go back to our Romans series and you remember the early chapters of Romans where Paul teaches us that we live in a broken place. And we are broken people. We enter the world, to use Paul's words, as sinful. He said there's no one righteous, no one who does good. We all know that we, we enter into the world sinful and separated from God. And it's not only us, it's the place. If you remember in Romans 8, it talks about that the creation itself groans, waits in eager... You are exemplary. You're an exemplary people of faith. You've become imitators of us. You have changed. You're different people than you were. And what's amazing about this is that they changed in a very quick, very quickly, very short period of time. We're going to study Acts 17 this morning, which is really the background of Paul writing this letter. And we're going to see that Paul was only in Thessalonica for less than a month, three Sabbaths. So somewhere between three and four weeks. And then he wrote this letter probably maybe four, five, six months later. He writes this letter back to them, affirming their faith. But he was afraid that their faith may have gotten sidetracked because we're going to see in Acts 17, they had to face incredible persecution. So Paul confesses some anxiety in this letter. Look at chapter 3, verse uh, 5. I might be out of order here, but I think we can find that. There it is. Paul says, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. So Paul is a little nervous. He was only with them for less than a month. He leaves. He writes a letter back confessing that he was wondering if they were holding true to the faith. And then the next verse says this. Paul sent Timothy back to them to see how they were doing. And he said, Timothy, has this now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love? Timothy's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. This is great affirmation of these people. And yet Paul was only there for less than a month. So it wasn't Paul's winsomeness. It wasn't his long-term influence that led to their standing firm in the faith was clearly a supernatural work of God that transformed these people. And that's the idea of this sermon series. Church, real change is possible 
Real, lasting, sustainable change is possible, but it doesn't happen through greater resolve. It happens through greater faith. Because we can't really do much that brings lasting change. But when we trust in the one who can change all things, there's transformation. So the big idea of this sermon this morning and really the whole series is this. I want you to expect. Expect holistic transformation as you, by faith, receive and internalize the Word and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's based on verse 5 of um, chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians. Let's go back there. I know I'm out of order here, you guys, back in the test booth. But look how good they are. Paul says, here's why they would be so transformed and standing firm in their faith. He said, it's because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake, and so you became imitators. Paul says the reason you became imitators is because the gospel came to you with power and with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just a set of information. It wasn't like a book or an email or a news article. No, this gospel was living, and it came to you with the power of the Holy Spirit, and it worked in you, and it has changed you, and you're still standing firm even though you faced intense persecution. So let's read about that now. Let's go back to Acts chapter 17, and it's, uh, we probably have as good of information about the context of Paul writing this letter as we do any of his letters in the New Testament. So this is really valuable because we can see this context. So here it is. This is when Paul first went to Thessalonica and how the church there got started. When Paul and his companions had passed through these two places, Amphipolis and Apollonia, I have no idea if I pronounce those correctly, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, so it's three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, let me just pause here. This was Paul's MO. This was what Paul did in every city. He would enter the Jewish synagogue, which was really the place of teaching about the Bible, about the law, and some worship happened there. And so Paul would go to the synagogue, and it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That means he took the Old Testament, that's all the scriptures they had at that time, and tried to prove to them that Jesus was the one, was the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. So he tried to convince them of that, explaining and proving that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. The last line says it. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. This is what Paul did in the synagogue. Now, in Thessalonica, it said some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, just some of them, a few from the synagogue, but also a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women joined him. So this is the core of a new church. It's made up primarily of Gentile believers. These were probably irreligious people until Paul had shared the gospel with them. Or if they were religious, they were certainly off track because they weren't Jews. These were Gentiles. So they probably were not people of faith. But now they've come to faith in just a few weeks that Paul is there, and it appears that there's quite a number of them. A few Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. That's the core of a new church. Um, but things turned bad. Some of the Jews who didn't join Paul, who were resistant, 
were persuaded, uh, um, I'm sorry, verse 5, other Jews were jealous, the ones who didn't respond positively, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Clever strategy, sounds a lot like what they did with Jesus before his crucifixion. Um, Maybe even hired some bad characters in the marketplace, got them to start a riot. They rushed to Jason's house, who was one of the new believers and probably where the church was meeting. That's where Paul was staying. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So this is just a chaotic riot. Now let's go on to the next screen. But when they didn't find Paul and Silas there, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house You see what's happening here? This guy hasn't been a believer for a month. And he's already been arrested because of his faith. Intense persecution. A mob wants to tear him apart. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason and the others post bond, and then they let them go. And then as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. They knew they were in danger, so they sent them away to a different city, which was about 50 miles away-ish, maybe a two, three-day journey. Verse 11 says now, well, verse 10, when they got there, they went into the Jewish synagogue, just like they did in Thessalonica. Verse 11 says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is really important. The Bereans received the Gospel message and they tested it with the words of Old Testament Scripture. They didn't take Paul's word for it. They looked to the Word of God to say, is this right? Is this indeed accurate? Very important. We're going to see that later, this reception of the Word of God. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek and women and many Greek men. So the same thing happens in Berea that happened in Thessalonica. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the Word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So that's what happened. Paul flees for his life. Silas and Timothy remain behind, presumably to disciple some of the people in these very new churches in Thessalonica and Berea, and uh, the church is launched. But what's ironic to me is Paul was there less than a month. They faced this incredible persecution. They're being arrested. They're suffering. They were irreligious people. They've only known Jesus for a few weeks, and they stay faithful to him. And then Timothy comes later and, and gives this good report, and Paul says, now we're, we're really full of joy because we know you're standing firm in your faith. It's an amazing thing. One of the best illustrations, I think, in all of Scripture of the transformative power of the gospel. I think this was a supernatural transformation. It happened quickly. It was holistic, and it was sustainable. Because when Timothy comes to visit Paul months later, he testifies of it, and Paul is thrilled with what's happening. I think this all goes back to verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1, where Paul says, our gospel came to you not just with words, it wasn't just human words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit. 
And when there's a convergence of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the human soul, change happens. Change happens. And that's really the power of the Gospel. Um, sometimes we don't recognize that because we don't receive. We, we don't fully embrace the Word and the Spirit of Jesus internally. And uh, that's what I want to tell you about by way of my own personal testimony this morning. Because you see, I was raised in the church here, actually at Crossroads. It was a whole different place back then when I was a kid. Um, but the gospel was preached. I was raised in a godly family. They, by the time I was 10 years old, I could have told you the facts of the gospel. But there really wasn't any change because for me it was just intellectual. I was just, okay, yeah, this is what happened. And I can recite that, almost like a creed or a, okay, I believe this, this, and this. But it, I don't think I had allowed the Word and the Spirit to become internal to me. I was still kind of trying to do life myself. And life for me at that stage, when I was in high school and early college, was all about having fun. And... Uh, so I did things in high school to have fun, sometimes that were um, mean to other people, and I had fun at the expense of other people. Got to college, uh, Monday through Thursday were just days to be endured until the weekend until you could party. And that's kind of how I lived my life. And I went to Purdue University because it was a good engineering school, and my thought was if I can get through this and get a, a, an engineering degree, I can get a pretty good job from there. I can make lots of money, and I can buy stuff that will make me happy and fulfill me. That was my MO. I'm not, obviously I didn't go that direction. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being an engineer or making lots of money. Praise Jesus for that. But for me, my motive in that was not the right thing. I was trying to find my joy, my happiness, my satisfaction in that. And that's an empty well. My wife and I were married when I was still in school. I'm now a junior in undergraduate engineering school at Purdue University, and things are getting a little tough and a little stressed. And uh, a friend came and challenged me. That friend was named Tom. And um, Tom kind of noticed my life. He noticed that I was thought I was doing okay, and as long as I did enough good things to keep God happy, I could party on the weekends. And he came to me on campus outside one day, and he opened his Bible up and put it on the hood of somebody's car, and he shared Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with me. And I'll never forget that verse. It, it says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not of works, so that no one can boast. And that was the first time that really grab my heart? Because I didn't know that. Or if I knew it, it didn't, it didn't land. I just thought if I affirmed these truths about the Bible and what God said, that I could live any way I want, and if I just threw in enough good things every so often, I'd get to heaven someday. But my friend Tom said, it, it's, it's just not about what you do, Matt. We're saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourself. It's not of your doing so that no one can boast. And that just hit me so hard. I was like, wow, I, I can't do anything, I guess, to please God. And honestly, it sent me into a bit of despair. And I started to really pray on this, like I'd never prayed in my life. Prayer up to that point, I think, was just kind of superficial. And God, give me a girl, give me something fun, help me to do it. Just kind of silly stuff. 
But then I just prayed out of desperation and for about a month or so. And I remember the day I finally got to the place where I just said, okay, Jesus, I'm going to give up and I'm going to surrender everything to you. And I remember it because as a poor college student who'd just been married, uh, you remember the board and blocks desks that some of us had back in those days when you didn't have two nickels to rub together? So I had some concrete blocks stacked up and a piece of plywood, but I went all out and found a piece of yellow laminate that I glued on it, bright yellow. It was the 70s. That was actually stylish at that time. It was bright yellow. And I can see it as clearly today as I could then. It's been over 40 years ago as I poured out my soul to Jesus and I said, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I give up. I give it all to you. I could see that my tears pooling on that yellow laminate. And at that point, I, I have to confess, I got a little scared because I wasn't a crier then. I'm still not much of a crier. <laughs> and I remember thinking, yikes, something's about to happen. If, if, what I, if what I just prayed and what I'm doing right now is causing me this kind of emotion, my life's about to change. I didn't know how, but I wasn't even sure at that point if that was going to be a good thing or not. So there's a little bit of fear. And then I got to tell you, literally the next day, I had this hunger to read the Bible that I've, I'd never had before. <laughs> and I started reading. And I don't know, I guess God just led me to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, longest sermon of Jesus recorded in the Scripture. And as I started to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I remember thinking, oh, why didn't somebody tell me this? <laughs> this is amazing stuff. Well, of course people had told me. I'd heard sermons on it. My parents had told me. But it, you see, it didn't land until I got to the point of saying, Lord Jesus, take my life and do what you want with it. That's the point of total surrender. Church, you can expect holistic transformation in 2022 to the degree that you give yourself wholly to Jesus. Any areas you hold back, don't expect change. But if you give it all to Him, if you allow yourself to be broken and poured out like He was, and we're going to celebrate that in a few minutes, you'll be amazed at the work of transformation that He does in you. And that started for me with the Word of God. And as I read the Sermon on the Mount, I realized I, it's silly for me all these years to have tried to please God because I can't do it. Because if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus references the Old Testament law a lot. Multiple times he starts out saying, you've heard that it was said, and that's a reference to the Old Testament law. One example is, you've heard it was said, do not murder. And that was me. I'm like, okay, I'm not a murderer. So I can party on the weekends as long as I hold to these truths and I claim those to be true. As long as I don't kill anybody, I'm good. But then Jesus said, but I tell you, whoever's angry with his brother... And I'm like, what? I'm angry a lot of the time. If people don't do what I want them to do, I'd rather punch them in the face. I'm, what? You mean if I'm angry, that, that disqualifies me? And these kind of things are over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. And suddenly I began to realize through the transformative power of Jesus in me that God didn't expect me to live up to his law. In fact, he knew I couldn't do it. That's why he sent Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount convinced me that I needed Jesus. And I needed to receive him. And that verse that Tom had shared with me, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, I began to realize I don't have, this was the first point of my transformation. <laughs> 
I don't have to prove myself to God by giving stuff to Him. I have to let God prove Himself to me by me receiving what He wants to pour into me. That's receiving grace by faith. And that began to turn my world upside down. What I thought of God became completely different. And I fell in love with His Word. And I not only read the whole Sermon on the Mount, but I memorized all three chapters within like three months. And I would recite it as I went walk to class and back and forth every day. And it just began to change me completely. It also then changed my relationships. That was the second point of transformation. First of all, I realized I couldn't earn favor with God. All I had to do was receive His favor and let that change me. Because, by the way, Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. God's created us in Christ Jesus. We are His workmanship to do to works for His glory. And I realized when I receive from God, He comes into me and I become a piece of His work. That's, that's a pretty literal translation of Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Recreated in Him to do works for Him. So instead of i got to do stuff to please God, no, i got to receive from God because He will pour His Spirit into me. He'll change me. He'll transform me so I can live a different way. And so my relationships with people began to change. And some of those people that I referenced to you that I was just really bullied in high school, I reached out and I found some addresses and wrote a letter to some of those guys. Didn't hear anything back right away, but I remember one year I got a Christmas card from a guy who I was terribly mean to throughout school years. And I had written to him earlier in the year and said, man, would you just forgive me? I know I hurt you a lot. And my heart is really broken over that. And I want you to know Jesus Christ is changing me and I just I feel terrible about what I didn't said to you. And I got a Christmas card from him that year that just said, Merry Christmas, thanks. And that meant so much to me. Um, I began to take things back to people that I had stolen from. I'm sorry that your pastor has to stand here and confess that I had a period in my life where I was... <laughs> but I remember literally taking stuff back to people saying, here, this is yours. And they'd say, oh, I wonder where that got to. How'd you get it? Well, let's say I borrowed it. No, I just took it from you, man. I'm really sorry. And so these were radical things for me. And this was all within a few months of this commitment of surrender. Third thing that changed was, and this was immediately and over time, was just how I manage my time, my talent, and my treasure. We just think of that as the three T's around Crossroads. Particularly my time changed. I began to spend so much more time in the Word of God. And I began to move away from my party friends on the weekends. We got involved in a local church. We actually started to sing in the choir. A guy recruited us to help with junior high youth ministry. Are you kidding me? At that point in my life, if you'd have told me a year before that I'd be working with junior hires in youth ministry, I said, what are you smoking? There's no way I'm going to do that. So my time began to change. I began to enjoy that. Teaching junior high kids of all people. And uh, then we, the Lord pressed on our hearts that we needed. We'd heard about this thing called the tithe. And uh, we did a little research, understood that was 10% of revenue, that God wanted us to give Him the first fruits of our revenue. Well, we didn't hardly have any revenue. I was a full-time student. She was working at some place on the college campus there. We didn't have two nickels to rub together. But we realized whatever comes in, we got to do this. Because we're trusting Jesus now, and okay, i got to do that. And there were months, 
folks, when we, uh, we'd go to the mailbox hoping something was in there <laughs> that would allow us to buy some groceries, a lot of ramen noodles, a lot of stuff in those days. But then we began to see the faithfulness of God. Checks would appear in that mailbox from random places. It's like, what? Where'd this come from? Food would show up at our house. People started to give us furniture. We even were given some cars over about a 10-year stretch. They were given two different cars. Are you kidding me? These were nice cars, okay. And we began to realize Jesus' words again from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. If this is how God cares for the grass of the field and the birds of the air, will he not much more take care of you? And we began to see this unfold over the decades, which has made such a difference in our life and ministry. I used to love to have people in our home, and I would just tell them the story of how everything in our home came to be there. Most of them gifts from people that that were totally surprising to us. And then the last point of transformation that started then, but it really crescendoed through these decades of trusting Jesus, as I, and I would just say it as I, I started to think a lot differently. Before I had turned everything over to Christ, I, I would say I was very egocentric. It was kind of all about Matt Boyers and me wanting to have fun and me wanting to make lots of money so I could buy more fun. And if something was wrong in our marriage, it had to be her fault. If something was wrong with my friends, they were jerks. If something was wrong in the money account, it was because nobody cares about me and they're not taking... You see what I'm saying? It was all about me and much of my life had to do with exalting myself. And over the years, God has just changed that to where it's, i got to tell you, church, it's even kind of hard for me to talk about all this this morning. It feels like I'm talking about myself. But it's the transformative work of the Word and the Spirit of Jesus. And I began to have a strong desire to exalt Jesus, and worship became something incredibly special. Corporate worship with the people of God, and even my own personal worship times. And then, by then, I'm in ministry, and ministry began to change, where as a young youth pastor, it was kind of all about me. You know, you want to be the cool, the cool youth pastor guy. And that was me for a few years. But as, I, as God transformed me and changed me internally, there was less of me wanting to get attention and credit and more to deflect that to others. And I think that's one of the reasons I love our pastoral residency here. It's an opportunity for me to invest in other young leaders and give them this pulpit. And they get to preach here a lot. It's really become fun for me and satisfying. I think that's why I love working through indigenous partners overseas in India and Africa. Because it's not about us. And great things are happening in those places. People are coming to Christ. Leaders are being trained to take the gospel forth. And none of those people know our names. Christ is being exalted. So I just I say all that by way of an example to say, just like the Word and the Spirit of Jesus converged in the hearts of the Thessalonians and radical transformation that was holistic and sustainable happened in them, expect it to happen to you. It has to me. And a lot of what I've said this morning was a long time ago in my rearview mirror but I'm such a different person than I used to be, and I'm so thankful to God. 
And uh, so that's the challenge for you moving forward this year is just that holistic surrender. Um, sometimes we call it, it's, it's different than head nod faith. Head nod faith is, yeah, I agree with that. But this kind of faith is doing what Jesus did, allowing yourself to be poured out, to be emptied, to receive him in fullness that he can do his great work of transformation in you. I'm going to have the band come back out. We're going to have a time of, of sharing in the elements, the symbols of the Lord's Supper that just shows us how Jesus gave all. And we can receive all that he wants to give to us if we surrender all. It's just, it's kind of simple. If we're holding anything back and we're trying to control that and it's ourselves, don't expect transformation there. But the degree to which you pour everything out and empty yourself, you can receive Jesus and he begins to do his incredible work. So we're going to have a, the band's going to lead us and as we sing, we'll have a instructions on the screen. If you've been around Crossroads, you know how to do this. If not, just follow the people in front of you. We invite you to come to the tables and partake at the table. Have a moment there with your family or the people near you. If you're not comfortable with that, um, our guys here also have some sealed communion cups that just stay in your row and they'll get that to you. When your row leaves to come to the table, you just stay and they'll make eye contact and get that to you if you, if you prefer one of those. And uh, so let's stand now and worship. And as you come to the table then, church, just, I just want you to think about making 2022 that year where you hold nothing back where you surrender all to Jesus and receive everything that he wants to pour into you.